Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus' appearance to two men on the road to Emmaus and how that story of Jesus upbraiding and educating these two men about the Old Testament and the New Testament involves typology and how it points directly to the liturgy that we celebrate at the Mass every day that Mass is celebrated. Liturgy of the Word, Liturgy of the Eucharist, rooted in Old Testament and New Testament. But the one concept important to understand is typology, how communication occurs in language. Stay tuned. Typology, what is it? Why is it important? And how is it that we understand Jesus through the foreshadowing of the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. I've talked about typology before, but it is front and center in the gospel reading today because Jesus himself uses typology, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, revelation of God in word and deed, and how it foreshadows the resurrection and Jesus' own ministry to the people in Galilee and Judea. So typology, it is based on types, on images. If you were just to think about your use of language and words, how often do you reflect on the images that are involved in uh, words and when people talk with you, how it invokes uh, memories from the past, how, say, reading a story of injustice, something that makes you so angry, it isn't like you've heard a story of injustice for the very first time. You've had experiences of injustice. And this experience really foreshadows how it is that you deal with injustice when you encounter it, uh, say, probably in your daily life. But also typologies can be concrete images. And so uh, you learn basic language when you're a kid, table, chair, table, well, that's table twice, mom and dad. But in uh, New Testament speak, what does it matter if you're a lamb or not? Unless you understand that lambs were sacrificed in the temple in the Old Testament, and the lamb is the sacrifice at the Passover meal. So what is typology so important? Well, it reminds us of how it is that God could actually reveal himself to you. When I was in uh, Yuma, I was teaching as part of an RCIA team. I was in my first experience, first few years as a Catholic priest. And it was a rather large group. And this woman who was coming into the Catholic Church from, I think, a Baptist background, I was talking about the Old Testament and the parts of the Old Testament that are so often referred to uh, in the New Testament. So creation, the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story of Noah, the story of Moses and the Red Sea, uh, King David, the prophets. If you didn't know these stories from the Old Testament, then when you start talking about Jesus, it, it's, it's just going to be so disconnected. Typology keeps us rooted in a common understanding of how it is that God talks to human beings. It's why we say salvation comes from the Jews, because without the Old Testament, 
Jesus is someone who just walks on water, raises people from the dead, rises himself, and promises that he'll take us with him in a new exodus out of Jerusalem. Well, just think about all of those things, about God's spirit hovering over the water, Moses and his exodus, um, Ezekiel talking about the people rising up from the dead in the Valley of Bones. Without that background, what would Jesus' promises mean to us? You know, typology has been a consistent way that the Catholic and the Orthodox Church have understood Scripture. Protestantism, depending on which as aspect of it, has kind of tended to <clears throat> disconnect itself from typology and foreshadowing the Old Testament. It's difficult to make any one blanket statement about the Protestant world and how evangelicals and Baptists and Episcopalians, Presbyterians and Lutherans, who are all different kinds of Christians, um, reflect back on or see the Old Testament as the background for, for the New Testament. Um, because it is such a fractured uh, movement at this point in time. But one of the reasons it's fractured is that it is disconnected from the Old Testament in some important ways that Catholicism and Orthodoxy did not. There is a saint that is revered both in the Catholic and the Orthodox tradition, and he's a very good example of uh, the use of typology. It's St. Theodore the Studite. Now, a studite is, a stylite is a monk that lives on top of a pillar, and that's really from classical antiquity. But a studite is a monk from the studious, studious mon monastery uh, outside of Constantinople. It's in ruins now, and the Erdogan government's threatening to make it into another mosque as they go back to this older way of Islam just simply supplanting the Christian history of, uh, of the Middle East. But the Studites were really the basis for the Studite rule, which is a, a very active monastery in preserving uh, Greek culture in the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Ukraine. I think they have about 75 monks right now. But Theodore the Studite um, was born in 759 AD in Constantinople, so the early Middle Ages, and he died in 826 AD in Bithynia, Turkey, uh, which is, I think, on the Black Sea. And so his feast in the West is November 12th. But the reason I bring him up is because uh, in, in prayer in Matins, which is the office of the readings, which is usually the first hour that a priest will celebrate in morning prayer, or alternatively, the last hour he'll celebrate after Compline night prayer. But we had a reading uh, yesterday, I think it was, from Theodore the Studite, and it's a great example of uh, the use of typology in uh, theologians that are rooted in Scripture and the early church fathers. Western theology at this point has more or less disconnected from it in, in a lot of important ways, although Scripture scholars like Brant Petrie, Michael Barber, Tim Gray, Scott Hahn, um, they're, uh, John Bergs, but they're very tied into typology because they, they understand 
that this is the roots of Christian uh, exegesis of the Old and the New Testament. But what I wanted to do was to read a little bit from the Office of the Readings written by Theodorus Studita, or St. Theodore the, Stu the Stu Studite. And here's what uh, he wrote, and see if you can pick up the use of typology in this, in this uh, Orthodox monk. This was the tree on which Christ, like a king on a chariot, destroyed the devil, the Lord of death, and freed the human race from his tyranny. This was the tree, referring to the cross, upon which the Lord, like a brave warrior wounded in his hands, feet, and side, healed the wounds of sin that the evil serpent had inflicted on our nature. A tree once caused our death, but now a tree brings life. Once deceived by a tree, we have now repelled the cunning serpent by a tree. What an astonishing transformation that death should become life that decay should become immortality, that shame should become glory. Well might the holy apostle exclaim, far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The supreme wisdom that flowered on the cross has shown the folly of worldly wisdom's pride. The knowledge of all good, which is the fruit of the cross, has cut away the shoots of wickedness. The wonders accomplished through this tree were foreshadowed, that is typology, clearly even by the mere types and figures that existed in the past. Meditate on these if you're eager to learn. So you see how typology is used uh, in the uh, fathers of the church and in uh, the monastic movement that is so rooted in uh, the, father's, uh, the Father's teaching. And so typology, just so we're all clear, typology means the study of the Old Testament prefigurations of Christ through events, realities, signs, and things that point forward to and are fulfilled in the New Testament and the new covenant of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you'd simply reflect back on what Theodore the Studite had referred to, he's referring to the tree in the Garden of, of Eden as being like the cross. He's compared the cross to a chariot, um, and he has just gone through, and what else has he done? Um, he's uh, talked about how the world is on the cross, and we're on the cross. Everything has been crucified. We were deceived by a tree, but now we've overcome the deceiver. Uh, typology, metaphor, all of these things are wrapped together. So as we listen to the story of the gospel from Luke, um, Jesus appearing on the road to these two believers who are fleeing, let's remember that typology is a different way of thinking. The gospel doesn't give us mathematical equations. It doesn't treat salvation as if it were some kind of biological observation. And that when we think about how the gospel operates on us, a mathematical, scientific, empirical way of thinking is not going to be that useful. So let's turn to another way of thinking, uh, the use of typology to understand what the life of Jesus means.
So given the background of typology that I just provided, let's listen to the words of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That very day, the first day of the week, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, and they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped, looked downcast. One of them named Cleopas said to him in reply, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that they have, have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, what sort of things? And they said to him, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported that they'd indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. Then some of those who went to the tomb and found things just as the woman had described, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what had referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on farther, but they urged him, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. As it happened, that while he was with them at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With, their eyes, with that, their eyes were open, and they recognized him but he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, where they found gathered together the 11 and those with whom they were saying, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Typology. Why is this story important? Well, for a variety of reasons. But let's just go through a few of the things that are about types. So that very day, the first day of the week. So the first day of the week is Sunday, right? That's why we have Mass on Sunday. And it's why we say Jesus is God recreating the world. Because on the first day, there was light. On the first day, wisdom. And that's exactly what's happening on the road to Emmaus. Now, Emmaus, geographically, is a little town about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And when he, in, when he encounters Cleopas, who maybe was the husband of Mary of Cleopas, Mary of, uh, who was married to Cleopas, who's at the foot of the cross uh, in the crucifixion story, it would suggest that, um, that maybe Cleopas is related like an uncle um, to Jesus, because it's Mary and Mary, the wife of Cleopas. So it's, you know, remember the old Bob Newhart show? This is my, the, uh, my name's Daryl. This is my brother, Daryl, my other brother, Daryl. It's why when we say the talk about the brothers and sisters of Christ, 
well, you don't have like mom and dad and two of the girls in the family named Mary. That's why, uh, as in like the story of finding Jesus in the temple, the understanding of brother and sister is a larger family understanding than shared parentage. But that's really a, another point. And so uh, he's talking to someone who should know him, his uncle. And it really isn't about family connection, is it? It's really about your understanding of God's word and action. And so maybe part of the story is that it's those who hear the word of God and believe it. These are the ones who are mother and brother and sister to Jesus. That blood relationship like Cleopas, without faith, uh, this is not important to God. And so Cleopas gives him a piece of his mind. Are you the only guy that doesn't know what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? And then just think about how Cleopas describes Jesus, how his faith falls short. And that is really the consistency of disbelief amongst the people who encounter Jesus risen from the dead. It's also basically the consistency of disciples' uh, lack of capacity or lack of understanding of who they're dealing with when they're uh, with Jesus. Listen to what Cleopas says. He says, these things happened to Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. Well, the church uh, believes that Jesus is far more than a prophet. He's the second person of the most holy trinity. A prophet speaks words that God speaks to him. Uh, Jesus is the source of wisdom. So Cleopas is missing a key point here, right? And then he says, we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Um, and this is the third day, and you know he's in the grave. Well, it's a misunderstanding of what the Messiahship, isn't it? Um, if redeeming Israel means uh, defeating the Romans and kicking them out of the country, that is not what God intends by Messiahship. And so they're trying to take Jesus on terms they're willing to accept him on, um, which is that he's like a prophet from the Old Testament. He's like what we expect a Messiah to be. But this is the problem of disconnecting from the Old Testament and not understanding the Old Testament. Why? The book, the scriptures are the church's book and the church is the authoritative interpreter of scripture because we're just not gonna concede that Jesus is disconnected from the Old Testament. You need to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises uh, made by God to the people of the Old Testament, to the Jewish people. So Jesus lets him have it. He says, oh, how foolish you are. He's talking to his uncle. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And so this is where Jesus himself uses typology and why we talk about typology, because Jesus taught us to read the Old Testament using typology. That's the part where it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the stories of the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them what referred to him, Jesus, in all the scriptures. And so that is what typology is. It's looking at types, words, and deeds in the Old Testament and how Jesus in his life, ministry, passion, death, and resurrection and ascension fulfills the promises that God made in the Old Testament. So now this is where the story takes an interesting turn. And so they get to a mass. They've been walking for, what, seven miles, uh, more or less. And so what's that, a couple hours, better part of a couple hours if you're, if you're moving along at a pretty steady clip. 
And so Cleopas and others ask Jesus to stay with them. And so they go inside, and then um, Jesus, uh, it says that it happened that while he was with them at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. It's the very same actions that Jesus does at the Last Supper in Luke and in all the other Gospels. Because the sacrament of the Eucharist is instituted before the crucifixion and then continued after the crucifixion. It's why we say, and rightly so, that the sacrament of the Eucharist participates in an unbloody way in the sacrifice of the cross, and it's how the meal of the sacrificial victim is given to the priest, the, the men and women baptized uh, into Christ's body. And so this is the story of the Eucharist even after the crucifixion. It wasn't a one-time event that we kind of uh, recreate. Uh, it is still being set forward for the church at every day at Mass. And so for Cleopas and the others, it says in the story, then their eyes were open. So what opened their eyes? What brought them to faith? Because meeting the historical Jesus didn't do that. Uh, crucifixion didn't do that. Mary and these other women saying that the tomb was empty and he'd been risen, that didn't do it. What brought them to faith? The explanation of the scriptures and then the participation in the Eucharistic banquet. What does that sound like to you? Where do you go and you get to hear the words of scripture, Old and New Testament explained, and then you do exactly, participate in exactly what Jesus invites you to. Bread, bread is taken, blessed, broken, and given to you to eat. Mass. This is a story explaining how Mass participates in the resurrected Christ and the whole history of the people of Israel. What overcomes doubt in our life? What overcomes doubt in, in a Christian's life is participating, coming to and engaging with sanctifying grace in the Eucharist and listening to the scriptures. Some Protestants get it about half right. The scriptures are salvific, but without the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, like there with the man, Cleopas and his uncle on the road to Emmaus, without understanding that, you are not in the right spiritual space to participate in, in Mass. So what happens if you're a doubter about the Eucharist or you're a doubter about uh, the Old Testament and Christ revealed in the Old Testament? What's the difference between a difficulty and a doubt? So in our conclusion of Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about doubts and difficulties. the bad spiritual space of doubters. And I'm going to carefully define by what I mean by doubt and by difficulty. A doubter is someone who denies. Now, you may think to yourself, I have my doubts, but I'm not denying. Then in the way I'm talking about it, um, a difficulty is a person who believes, but they just don't understand how this can be so. So just for the purposes, and this is, I love this, for the purposes of the Oral Valley Catholic, um, do you deny uh, the resurrection and the divinity of Christ? 
or do you believe it, but you have difficulties? Let's talk about it in those terms because it's very present in the resurrection stories. Remember last week, Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in his hands or my hand in his side, I will not believe. All right, that's a doubter looking for some empirical verification of a mystical experience. And it's as if to say, personal, hands-on experience can dispel my disbelief. Well, it never says that Thomas actually does that. But what he does do is he encounters the risen Christ. And uh, Christ uses his name. It's like Mary who doesn't recognize the, uh, the gardener until the gardener says her name, Mary, and then recognizes Christ. What happens if you never get to the place where you believe God has called you by name, that uh, you are invited to the table, and you have this sense in your heart of hearts that you want this to be true, and then you're willing to accept it as true, because this is what it means to come to faith. And then when you come to faith, then you start whacking through all the difficulties of faith. You know, St. John Henry Newman, who, um, uh, canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church, came from the Episcopalian Church to the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th century at great personal cost. I don't think he's revered as a saint by the Episcopalians, but who, who can say? But he is certainly by the, by the Catholic Church. And so what John Henry Neumann said about uh, difficulties and doubts, and this is where I'm getting this distinction between doubt and difficulties, although not everybody would use the words in the way that I just did, and we all have to recognize that. But here's what John Neumann said. 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. And what he means by that is uh, he had tons of difficulties. He uh, didn't think the Pope should have proclaimed his infallibility at the First Vatican Council, and he was very vocal about that. He had great difficulties for a variety of reasons, what it would mean about relationships with the Protestants. What, how could you possibly talk about infallibility in any kind of way that would actually preserve freedom of thought in the church? Um, and so, uh, you know, those, are, those arguments are still being made back and forth, even though the First Vatican Council supposedly solved uh, the realm of infallibility. And as an abstract concept, you bet, it sure did. But how it applies day-to-day -to, -day to what the Pope does, that's a different matter. And I notice that's at some of the disagreements that are on in the church right now. Uh, but a person who believes isn't denying the resurrection, isn't denying the church as the risen body of Christ, isn't denying the authority of the church, scripture, maybe even sacraments. So some people, I think, have real questions about the Eucharist, apparently some Catholics and certainly quite a lot of Protestants. The key is, how do you work through your difficulties? And difficulties can only be worked through, they can only be addressed within a context where you believe that the answer has been given to you. And if there isn't standards for it, if there's no tradition, if there's no understanding of how to understand Jesus in relationship um, to the Old Testament, you get this free-floating Jesus that in American Protestantism um, and uh, can also infect us in Christianity is he's either your best friend 
or uh, Jesus is my boyfriend. That was a thing in the, the 90s, which I always thought was weird. Um, the difference between uh, my call to communion with him or just a personal relationship like he's a friend who kind of helps me in life. Uh, see, all of these things are about whether or not you're going to take Jesus as the God that loves you so much, but also a God that has wrath and that there is punishment and that God is reality. And to not come to terms with that reality, no one gets their own special deal with God. Um, we come to God as he is. And so not filter through our hopes about who we should be or who we'd want him to be. G.K. Chesterton said, there should be in every church in the land a picture of Jesus embracing the center and then another picture of Jesus wagging his fingers at the center because both of those are true about Jesus. And when you get only part of the picture of Jesus, then you have a very maimed understanding of God. The, part, the importance of a way of understanding what the New Testament means is because it's actually rooted in the teaching of the church, and that always involves typology. And so why are difficulties good? Well, it means you have to go and learn something about your faith, and it would strengthen your faith. The second reason difficulties in your life could be good, because you're gonna seek clarification. The third reason is, is because as you go through your own difficulties, you're gonna develop your own insights into the gospel. So think about this story because it really is about the liturgy, the word and the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread. Where do we bring our difficulties? And we bring them before the feet of Christ and the church. But for the doubters, people just always are on the fence whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And if he did, does he have anything meaningful to say to me? Uh, there is no way to honestly engage God uh, when you won't even get beyond your doubts, just accept and then start working through what all your challenges are in faith, both the intellectual challenges, the emotional challenges, and then just the day-to-day -day struggle of being a faithful disciple. This has been going on for a long time, friends. Just read the scriptures and look at how much trouble the disciples had, including Cleopas and his buddy. So God bless you. And this has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. Hey, did you know you can listen to me on uh, Amazon's Audible? If you get Audible books, just subscribe to Oral Valley Catholic there.